Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 34. Genesis 25, 19 through 34. And as you turn there and get that settled, I want you to think about what are the what would be three top characteristics you would choose if you had to create a, a team for your company. You had to create a, create a team for your company, a, a certain project that you had to fulfill. What are three qualities or characteristics you would think about as you were choosing that team? I'll give you just one second. I thought of a few you might, you might have thought of. One would be integrity, right? You want, you want someone who doesn't just say what you want to hear. You want them to have integrity. You want them to be authentic and real. You want them to have integrity when no one's looking. Uh, not just performing for when the boss is around. You perhaps want someone who is organized, well organized, who you know, is not just chaotic and scatterbrained, but they can put a plan together, they can manage people, and they can manage details really well. You want someone who's a team player, someone who's not just in it for themselves, but wants to contribute to the team, wants to help others succeed, not just get ahead themselves. You probably uh, maybe thought of someone who's a good communicator, because right, all the genius in the world doesn't matter that much if you can't communicate it. Uh, we, we think in terms like this, and it's right and good to think in terms like this when, when choosing uh, someone for a project like that. And yet, when we come to uh, the biblical economy, when we come to God's economy, we see that He doesn't choose in the ways that we would choose. In fact, Sometimes he chooses something or someone for his purposes, and it could lead, leave us kind of scratching our heads. Like, why would you choose that to accomplish your purposes? It doesn't seem to make sense. I once um, was talking with a man who had a different perspective than I do. He, he was talking about Paul and how great a man Paul was, and he, he talked about how lucky God was to get Paul on his side. And now that he finally got Paul on his side... Uh, Christianity really made some great strides. And of course, Paul was a great man. He, he is a genius. And yet, we know in God's sovereignty that God formed him in his mother's womb, that God made him the man that he was, that he ordained every step of the way, every step of his education and his person, and prepared him for that moment in time where he would change him. We look this morning in Genesis 25, 19 to 34, and we see this choosing of God. We see what's called this doctrine of election. And one of the reasons I love expository preaching and preaching sequentially through books of the Bible is that often you'll come to topics you wouldn't ordinarily preach about or speak about. Now, it's not that I would shy away from the doctrine of election, but last week we preached on the resurrection, uh, something all Christians believe on. And this week we come to this text of scripture and we see the doctrine of election not that i would shy away from it but i wouldn't necessarily pick that to preach on the week after the resurrection election means choosing uh, deciding and so the scripture uses this term election 
uh, to speak of God's choice, his sovereign choice of fulfilling his plans. And in this text, we see his divine choosing of Jacob. Jacob is one who perhaps would meet some of those qualities that we think of in someone we would choose. He is very cunning. He's very smart, and yet not necessarily in the ways we might like. He is deceptive, and he looks after himself rather than others. Uh, And yet we see God's choosing Jacob to fulfill his plan. And so as we, as we look at this text, I want us to try to be able to make some sense of that. Try to make sense of what God is doing here in this situation of Jacob and Esau. Let me uh, read our text and then pray for us and then we'll begin. Genesis twenty-five nineteen to 34. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up. And Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage of scripture in our series in Genesis, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would teach us, that we w- you would lead us to turn to you in repentance and faith, that you would use this passage to help us to see your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're picking back up in the uh, series in Genesis. We left off with an account of Abraham's life and death. The author, Moses, is tracking the line of Abraham. So in verses 12 to 18, he traces the line of Ishmael. And in verse 19, he gives an account of Isaac's line. This is the line of the promise. So he spends a lot more time here than with Ishmael. So do you remember the promises that God made to Abraham? God would make him into a great nation. He would give him a land of promise. 
He would give him an offspring. He would give him an heir through whom all the nations would be blessed. So remember, too, God had promised this as a unilateral covenant. In essence, God had said to Abraham, I will keep my promise to you, and if I ever were to turn back on it, if I were to ever go back on my promises, then the covenant threats and curses will be upon me and not upon you. Ishmael will become great too, but only Isaac is the son of promise. Through him will come the promised offspring who will be a blessing to all nations. But there's a problem. Just like with Abraham and Sarah, Isaac's wife is barren. So she's not able to have children. And this is a test of faith for Isaac and for Rebekah. Will they do the same as Abraham and Sarah did? Try to undertake the accomplishment of God's promises by their own will and by their own means? Or will they trust in God to do as he has promised, even when it seems impossible? This is a test of faith, and Isaac passes the test. He prays to the Lord that his wife might become pregnant, and the Lord grants his prayer. Friends, know that your daily struggles and your difficult trials are tests of faith to strengthen you, to stretch you, to grow you in your faith. Will you try to accomplish things simply by your own power? Or will you trust in God and pour out your heart to Him in prayer? And notice Isaac's prayer for his wife, Rebecca. He didn't just pray for a day or a week or a month or a year, or five years, or ten years, or fifteen years. He prayed for his wife for twenty years that she would become pregnant. This is amazing perseverance in the face of adversity. Amazing perseverance in prayer for his wife. Twenty years! See, most of us do not know what persistent prayer is. We linger for a few minutes. We linger for a day. We linger saying, praying for the same things, perhaps even a week or a month, and we get weary of asking. We get weary of pouring our hearts out to God in prayer. But when our prayers are bound up in the promises of God, we ought never lose hope. We ought never lose faith. We ought to never stop praying. We ought to continue on in persevering prayer until the Lord sees fit to bring about His work on behalf of His people. But this is a trouble. This trouble is not only a test of faith, but it's also God's way of showing that He carries out His plans not by the strength or will of humans, but by His own power. He supernaturally enables Rebekah to have children. He gives life where there is no life. In the same miraculous way Isaac was conceived, so were his sons conceived by a supernatural act of God. But in our text, we see there's yet another problem. After Rebekah's barrenness is supernaturally overcome, now she finds this violent struggle going on within her. It's like her twins are wrestling inside her belly. 
So she inquires of the Lord, and the Lord speaks to her. And this is a prophecy. Look at the Lord's words in verse 23. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. It's somewhat mysterious, and yet from our perspective, it's pretty straightforward. Her sons will become two nations which will be divided from one another. One will be stronger than the other. Now, up to this point in that prophecy, there's nothing there that's too shocking. It's understandable that if you have two nations, one's probably going to be stronger than the other. But the last line is where things get really shocking. The older will serve the younger. See, two themes which are prominent in all of Genesis are present here. There is one, this brotherly rivalry. There was Cain and Abel, there's Isaac and Ishmael, and now there is Jacob and Esau. But there's also this theme of an upheaval of the natural order of things in the world. The older shall serve the younger. And we'll consider that uh, in more detail in a few moments. But for now, let's continue with the flow of this text. You have this prophecy, and then the twins are born. Esau is born first. He's hairy. And Moses says it's like he was wearing a hairy coat, a hairy fur coat. And Jacob comes out holding Esau's heel, so his name is called Jacob. The author quickly moves past their childhood and into how they developed. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, the scripture says, dwelling in tents. Now here we need to step back from our own cultural lenses and not see what isn't there. Because from this description, we might think Esau is cast as a hero, the hero of the story. And we might think that Jacob is cast as kind of a girly man. He likes to stay home in the tents, right? But actually, a skillful hunter, a man of the field, these are not prized traits in the culture. Uh, Rather, Esau would be seen with contempt or disdain, while Jacob would be seen more like a civilized man, a shepherding type of man, highly valued in the Hebrew culture. And from the start, we see this division is already taking place, right? Isaac loves Esau because he has a taste for wild game. But Rebekah loves Jacob. They had their favorites. And surely this is a sign that the prophecy at birth is already being fulfilled and will be fulfilled. And in verses 29 to 34, we see an instance of this division. And it is no small instance either. Esau has been out in the field and Jacob has been cooking stew. And Esau is famished. He's exhausted. So he asked Jacob for some of that red stuff, the text says. But Jacob seized this opportunity to get something he wanted. Something of value that he had been longing for. He wanted the birthright. He wanted a double share of the inheritance and his father's blessing. Esau loses sight of what's really of value and instead focuses on his immediate need. What good is the birthright to me if I die, he says. Jacob wants a more sure word, though, so he makes him swear to him. So Esau does swear it, and he gulps down the stew and goes his way. And then we have this comment from the author about what had taken place. He says, this is how Esau despised his birthright. He gave it up. He treated it as worthless. 
Now we have an even clearer picture of who these two brothers are. They are very different from one another. Esau is pictured as kind of a dumb brute. He values the wrong things. He despises the spiritual things, even his very own birthright in the family of promise. Jacob, on the other hand, values the right things and the spiritual things, but goes about getting them in the wrong ways. If Esau is a dumb brute, then Jacob is like an evil genius. Now, there are a variety of ways we could go with this, a variety of directions we could go with this. There are many lessons for the people of God in this passage. Of course, the sovereignty of God is woven throughout this account, as it is the rest of Genesis. We have a lesson, a lesson on being persistent in prayer. We have a lesson on the dangers of showing favoritism toward children, the importance of prioritizing the valuable and the spiritual over the immediate and the earthly. And there's a lesson here about gaining good and valuable things by the right means. As it is said, the ends don't justify the means. But while all of these lessons contribute or have a part in the main theme of this passage, I don't think they are the main, any of those are the main theme. So what I want us to see in this passage, and what I think the main theme is, is this. The gracious nature of divine election. The gracious nature of divine election. Now Paul helps us here in Romans chapter, chapters 8 and 9. Go ahead and flip over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 and 9. It's, it's really good for us to get in the habit of not just believing what your pastor says. Now, I'm not going to try and lead you astray, but I'm limited, I'm finite, and we ought to be like the Bereans, searching in the Scriptures to see if what is proclaimed is true. So Paul helps us here in Romans chapters 8 and 9. In Romans 8, Paul lays out the difference between those, those people whose minds are set on the Spirit versus those who have their minds set on the flesh. He contrasts these two ways of life. And it's really a brilliant chapter on, on justification, on redemption, on the love of God for those who are in Christ, on how God is going to make all things new, on how there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and how nothing can separate them from God's love. And then in chapter 9, Paul begins to speak about his love for his kinsmen according to the flesh, that is, those who are ethnically Jewish. He says he has unceasing anguish in his heart that they might be saved. And he begins answering a question about God's promises. Have God's promises failed since the Jews have not come to faith in Christ? And of course he says no. No, his promises have not failed at all. And he says the key to understanding these things is to know that this, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God the children of the promise. And he interweaves this idea of God's faithfulness and fulfilling his promises to his people with this idea and theme of divine election, of God's choosing. So listen to what Paul says in Romans 9, 10 through 13. Look with me as I read that. Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, 
though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And that's from Malachi. And now listen to what he says in verses 14 to 16. What shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It all comes down to God and His mercy. Amen? Amen. So then we come to our theme, the gracious nature of divine election. To help us see that God's election is gracious, I want you to see four truths about it. Four truths about divine election. I know I have to move rather quickly now. First, notice that divine election is not based on natural descent or order. It's not based on natural descent. The firstborn got the birthright, the double portion of the inheritance, the blessing from the father. And yet we see here with Jacob and Esau that it's Jacob, the younger, who gets the birthright. We'll see later that he also gets his father's blessing. And these two are vitally connected with one another. In Hebrew culture, it was all about the firstborn. He would have the special privileges and benefits. But God upends what we would expect. He shocks us here. He shocks His people in His choice. He doesn't automatically place His blessing and election on someone because of their natural descent or birth order. In fact, He works in quite the opposite way, it seems, in order to prove a point. John 1 12 through 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is those who are spiritual children of Abraham who are his children, who are God's children, whether Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. Even Jews, Paul would argue, who have the covenants and the signs and the promises must find their place at the foot of the cross if they are to be saved. It's not simply a rubber stamp salvation for the Jews because of their ethnicity. And by extension, we who are Gentiles are not automatically excluded because of our ethnicity. God's election is a mystery, and He has included all kinds of people from all types of backgrounds and cultures and ethnicities. So Revelation tells us that far from there being just one ethnic background in heaven, they all are represented at the throne of God and His kingdom. Those from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation will gather together. Those chosen by God for His special possession. And they will worship Him together for all eternity. God's election is not based on natural descent. Number one. And number two, divine election is not based on merit. It's not based on human merit. So in verse 23, when God says, The older shall serve the younger, He's not simply foretelling what's going to happen. He is doing that, but this is not a simple foreseeing of the future by God. Rather, he's declaring what he has decided. He's declaring what he has ordained. The older shall serve the younger. 
And Paul interprets this in Romans 9 and reminds us that God said this while the twins were in the womb and, quote, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. This was prior to anything that they had done. This was before Jacob's deceptions, before Esau's rashness. As one theologian says, election is not based on Jacob's goodness. Rather, it is the source of Jacob's goodness. In other words, Jacob isn't chosen because he is morally upright, but God's choosing of Jacob ensures that he will become morally upright. And aren't you thankful that God's election is not based on our moral achievement or your own ability to measure up to God's righteousness? You see, if it is, we're all in a big heap of trouble. We may think that we're actually pretty good, that we're doing fairly well for ourselves, but that's only because we're comparing ourselves to one another. And we know we usually grade ourselves on a curve. If you find However, any good in yourself, any moral uprightness, any ounce of virtue or kindness or faithfulness or love, you can be sure that it did not originate in and of yourself. Because if you trace it, you will find that it goes back up the stream to the source. The source of all goodness, which is God himself. It's important that we recognize here that God's election is not based on merit, even foreseen merit or foreseen faith or foreseen righteousness. Some think that in eternity past, God looks down the corridors of time and sees that someone will come to faith or sees that they will do good. And so as a result of his foreseeing that, he chooses them. But of course, this turns the doctrine of election on its head. If God does choose based on foreseen faith or righteousness, then election is based on merit. Just merit that hasn't happened yet. And if that's the case, then we would have something to boast about. If that's the case, then like the first pick on the basketball court, we can hold our heads high knowing we've got something that we can take pride in ourselves. But if God's choosing is not based on merit or righteousness, then we have nothing to boast about except for God's amazing grace. There's, there's another important implication of this. If God chooses before someone has done good or bad, then is there ever a chance that he will unchoose him because of his goodness or badness? So think about this. This is an important aspect of our salvation in Christ. If you belong to God and he placed his love on you, not because of your goodness, but despite your badness, is there ever going to be a time when he withdraws his love from you? Have you ever chosen something not really knowing what you were getting into? And then you you wanted to back out somehow? chosen something or someone and then you realized it was a bad choice maybe we've done that with presidents <laughs> our votes our elected officials i've coached many sports teams and about about to start coach uh, baseball 
coming up pretty soon. And part of that is choosing people to be on our team. And I, of course, I want to choose those who are athletic and those who are good. I also try to look very carefully at who follows instructions because that's also very important. But it doesn't matter what I do. Often, almost every time, there will be at least one or two where I thought that they were really good at following directions or they're really skillful and they get on the team and it's like, that's not who I thought it was. See, our choosing is based on outward appearance of what we think often someone can do for us, how good or talented they will be, and yet things are different with God. He who knows the end from the beginning, will he all of the sudden become surprised at just how bad you really are? Will he say at your moment of weakness and sin, wow, now that really changes things. I may have to rethink choosing that one. Will he have second thoughts about you because you're just not performing as well as he thought you would because you're not measuring up to others? Well, not if this doctrine is true. Rather, as Paul says in Romans 8.30, those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It is as good as done. You see, in this doctrine of divine election, there is great comfort. This is a pillow to rest your head on. Because if it's not based on natural descent, if it's not based on merit or foreseen righteousness, then what can we say? But it is based on nothing less than the sheer mercy of God. That's our third truth about divine election. Divine election is based on the sheer mercy of God. You see that Jacob isn't exactly a worthy candidate. He's tricky. He's deceptive. He takes advantage of his brother's weakness to swindle him out of his birthright. Is this the kind of hero we would choose as one of the fathers of our faith? See, it's not that Esau is really that bad and Jacob is really, really good. It's not that Esau is unworthy of the birthright and blessing, and Jacob is worthy of it. It's that both Esau and Jacob are unworthy in themselves. But that God chooses to have mercy on Jacob. For as God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And as Paul says in Romans 19, 9.18 So then God has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills. So let me be clear about what I'm saying. Salvation from beginning to end, from A to Z, from start to finish, is all the work of God. And it is all of grace. All of it. No one deserves God's favor. And so we must say that if anyone gets his grace, if anyone gets his favor, it is all due to his mercy. Our minds sometimes turn to a question, why do bad things happen in this world? Why is this bad thing happening to me? We wonder at God's sovereignty and his goodness. Isn't he able able to stop these bad things that happen in our world? And we know he's good, so why doesn't he put an end to it immediately? But isn't a better question, why do good things happen to sinful people like us? 
with our sin, with the world's brokenness, isn't it a great wonder that God gives us good things? Isn't it a wonder that He gives us joy and love and music and sunshine and all the goodness of this life? It is all of His grace. And isn't it a wonder that He has given us grace and salvation and eternal life and forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ? It is only by His mercy, it is only due to His grace that anyone is saved And it is in Jesus Christ that this grace is poured out on those who believe. So let me turn to our last truth. God's election is not based on natural descent or merit. Rather, it's based on the sheer mercy of God. And fourth, divine election is God's means of fulfilling his plan of redemption. This is one of God's means of fulfilling his plan of redemption through this account. And God's choosing of Jacob, God is continuing his plan of redemption. He's fulfilling his promises to Abraham. He's fulfilling his promises to Adam and Eve in the garden to give them an offspring, a seed who would crush the head of the serpent. He's fulfilling his promises to Abraham to make him into a great nation and to provide for him an offspring through whom all the nations would be blessed. And this offspring will come through the line of Jacob. The line will continue through younger sons and through misfits, all the way to a young, humble woman, a virgin, who supernaturally conceives the Son of God. And she names him Jesus. But he would not be like his ancestor, Jacob. He wouldn't gain the birthright and blessing by deceptive means. No, it's his by virtue of being the one and only Son of God. And he wouldn't be like Esau either, the rash Esau who despised his birthright. Rather, Jesus is really the truer and greater older brother who extends the benefits of his birthright to all of his younger brothers. And he does it through laying down his own rights, through laying down his own life for the sake of others as he dies on the cross for sinners. This was Abraham's hope. Jesus was Abraham's hope. This was Isaac's hope. And this was Jacob's hope. This is how God saves his people from their sins. This is how he saved our fathers of the faith and every saint who has ever been accepted by God. And this is how he will save you. If you will come to him in faith, if you will rely upon the son of God who died for the forgiveness of If you will lay down your pride and your self-reliance, if you'll lay down your rights and your sins and find all your hope in Christ, and you will be saved and it will be because of his mercy, all because of his mercy. It will be all because of his grace and it will all resound to the glory of God and we will sing with the saints of God in his kingdom, salvation belongs to our God. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All glory be to Christ. Let's pray together. Dear Father, your word in many places is deep and mysterious and difficult to understand. We admit it's difficult to make sense of your sovereignty and your election and and our choices and our wills. But we thank you that you reveal enough to show us 
your goodness and your mercy and your grace. And we thank you for showing us just how much we need you. How desperately sinful we are without you. How dependent we are upon your mercy. Lord, I pray that you would continue by this word to weed out every ounce of self-reliance or pride thinking that we are something when we are nothing. Not so that we would simply have pity on ourselves, but so that we would see Christ and His grace. So that You would magnify Your glory in our hearts. So that we would be captivated by the greatness of Your mercy for sinners like us. Grow us in an awareness of Your holiness and Your power. And grow us in an awareness of our own sin so that we, we might grow in our appreciation of the cross of Christ and His work for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.